Hey everybody, it's David Burkus. I am so excited. My new book, Under New Management, launches in just a few short months. If you want to get a special preview of the book and find out more about it, I've put together some awesome previews and pre-order bonuses for first movers. To get on that list, text first mover to 33444. That's first mover, all one word, to 33444, or go to com first mover. Now, on to this episode of the Leader Lab Podcast. This is Josh Davis. You're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Josh Davis. I have just published a book called Two Awesome Hours, Science-Based uh, uh, Strategies to Harness Your Best Time and Get Your Most Important Work Done. It's really a book about how to deal with being overwhelmed uh, with too much work. And, uh, uh, you know, we're going to get into more about why that is in a moment, so maybe I'll save that. I also um, have uh, uh, was done a lot of teaching. My first love is teaching. I taught high school. I've taught college. I was on the faculty at Barnard College for a number of years. And, uh, and now I'm uh, the director of research uh, and lead professor for the Neuroleadership Institute. And um, I, sh- I should add, actually, you, you walk that really fun line where you've taught at both Columbia and Barnard College at Columbia, which I've never figured out what the relationship with that whole thing is, but that's beside the point. There's too too much to think about, and Lord knows we're overworked, right? That's what the whole sort of point is. I, I want to I dive into a ton of different stuff um, because, you know, I've, I found the book totally unrelatable. I'm not overworked at all. <laughs> <laughs> but first, I kind of just want to... Um, Two awesome hours. Where does that come from? Well, so so the idea was this: that uh, you know, typically when we get overwhelmed, we just think, "All right, I, I just need to buckle down. I need to work constantly. I got to stay focused. I got to work more hours." There's a lot. There's more. There's too much work. How else can I do it by just putting in more time? You know, uh, except by putting in more time. And so, so uh, you know, that's what we try to do. But that turns out to be a terrible solution for a human being. It'd be great for a computer. You know, a computer is going to give you the same output every time, run it as often as you can. But for a human being, we are biological creatures, and we can have, but, but what we can do that computers can't, we can have these periods, short periods, maybe it's 20 minutes, maybe it's a couple hours, maybe it's even three hours, but where we can be really effective. We can get the important work done, we can make great decisions, we can think clearly, be creative. That can carry us through the whole week sometimes, if you know that, that little bit of really great effective work, and then we can have several days on end where we're really unproductive or kind of worthless. And uh, you know, so what I said about thinking about trying to study, trying to learn about is can we set up the conditions for those brief periods of being really effective? Uh, and, and there's nothing magical about two hours in particular. It's that two hours seems to be reasonable and attainable by anyone after learning about the science, learning about the psychology and the neuroscience findings about how we set up those conditions. It, you know, when we focus on having a couple of hours a day of being really effective, and it doesn't have to be the same couple of hours uh, every day, when we focus on that and think about how will I be effective when I need to be, and understanding that we don't need to be effective all the time and we can't be, we actually can end up being much more productive, uh, getting more work done and having some more downtime. So it's a it's a different approach to how we're thinking about our work. See, I I, I think that's totally awesome. And I, I one of the things I love about this is that 
I, growing up was just always, at some point in my life, maybe this is what the real marker of adulthood, I don't know, but at some point in my life, I stopped being paid for the hours I was putting in and started being paid a salary, right? AKA the results. And the weirdest thing is that I noticed that every manager I ever had, even after that, was still tracking how many hours I sort of showed up, right? Mm -hmm. So as good as we are at this whole, like, oh, it's just about the results, et cetera, I think we still have all of these subtle little reminders. Like you said, I mean, sort of like a robot, but even in like the workplace, we have these subtle little reminders that are like, no, it's all a function of how many hours you put in. Well, not if the hours are crap, right? Not if they're not under those right conditions. So it's one of the things that I, I sort of loved about the book. Of course, um, you know, you couldn't have called it the two-hour work week. That's kind of already taken. You don't want to one-up Tim <laughs> Ferriss. Um, but I love that idea, and I love that concept. And and actually, let's let's stay in that workplace mode for a little while, and let's talk about you. Actually, the the fifth strategy. So maybe we're going in reverse order here. I don't know. We'll see. Is about making your workspace work for you. It was one of my favorite chapters. One because it coming at the end, I sort of got it more right. So I was better able to sort of understand the lessons. But also um, because I have like two or three different places where I try and get work done and they all suck. <laughs> um, so I used to have a home office and then I had a second child and he stole that. And so now I like that whole home working from home thing doesn't work for me. Um, I have an office at the university, but the door, it's like culturally accepted that the door is always open. So in effect, like I have an office, but it's really a cubicle. Right. And then um, I try and always find myself in that sort of third space of a coffee shop or a, a co-working space or whatever, where it's they're all sort of equally distracting. What effect have you found? Um, and you talk about it, you talk about it in the book, but what effect have you found on sort of how the workplace or the, the actual setting that you're trying to work in affects all of this? Well, so the, the setting that the work that the workplace can have on us uh, is real. Um, it's, you know, many of the ways that it affects us are the ways you would expect. Uh, having the research to back that up helps us know that it's, you know, not just something we should, you know, get over, though. Uh, also, from looking closer at the research, you can get a better sense of what things we can do. So many people do have a lot of restrictions, just like you, about, you know, well, I don't have the option of having a dedicated home space. I don't have the option of having a closed door space at work. You know, I might be in a public space when I'm trying to work. So we can't control all of these things. And there are still some things we can do. So one, one thing to be aware of, though, is that, uh, you know, our attention systems are designed to pick up on what's changing. They are not designed to stay focused. They're, they're, their adaptive value is to help us pick up on what's changing in the environment. So, so if that's happening, if you're picking up on changing things in your environment, then that's good. That means your brain is working properly. So that's nothing to beat yourself up about. But what it does mean is that if you're in a workspace with other people, what research has shown is, is the hardest thing to tune out, the easiest thing to be distracted by, is speech by other people. So when other people are talking. Um, so if, if, we're in, uh, you know, if you're in a coffee shop where there's talking, that is, you know, that's one of the hardest things to tune out. Right? If you're in your typical open plan office space, other people on the phone, one of the hardest things to tune out. The thing is we don't have to be at our best all the time, but there are times when we really need to be at our best, in which case, you know, if you really do have a lot of restrictions, then finding you know, a place that you can reserve for a couple of hours or having some noise-canceling headphones uh, that you put on at critical times. Because, you know, if you have them on all the time, then you're not take, getting the benefits of the chance interactions at work either. But for the times when you really do need to think clearly, have do something challenging and creative, then then giving yourself a chance to, to really have some silence 
you know, as a professor uh, myself, when we used to have the, you know, have the door open, I would buck the trend, actually, even though it wasn't culturally appropriate. And I would close the door sometimes if I had an hour when I, two hours when I really needed to focus. So there's some things we can do, but there are also some things we can do on a more subtle level about the specific workspace. And this is something anyone can do that, you know, we tend to leave those things out on our desk that are meant to be reminders of something that we wanted to get back to. Now, we usually only need reminders for those things we didn't want to get to in the first place. Right? So it specifically tends to be not just reminders, but things that are a little bit unpleasant to get to or challenging. We're not sure how to do it. There was even a research study once looking into you know, the purposes of leaving stuff out on a desk. And in fact, the primary purpose was as reminders. Now, that is precisely what you don't want your attention systems uh, your systems that are designed to pick up on changing things, to be exposed to when you want to sit down and work. And so the importance of having a clear space, uh, the desk that you're working at, the table that you're working at, not having those reminders there uh, is, really, is really quite high. And so you know, if you're not someone who tends to clean up regularly, I, I'm someone who tends to have things pile up, when I know I really need to be present, what I do is I I will literally just clear off the space, dump it all in a box or something, stack it up and put it somewhere else, and get to it during my less effective time. You know, when I find myself then not being so effective later, later on in the day or something like that, uh, or after a, a tough meeting and I'm kind of spent, then I'll say, great, now is my chance to go through and throw out some of those papers. You know, so it's, it's, uh, it's, it's making it easier on yourself that way. There's a few other things, but I'll just pause there for a second to... Uh, to see if you wanted to take it any direction. Yeah, I, I wanted to actually, this is just me being selfish and hopefully everybody listening will enjoy it too. But um, I thought it was interesting that, you know, it's so, there's so much debate. Well, we won't call it debate because debate implies there's two sides uh, and there's really not the research on open offices is sort of lacking, right? Um, but there's so much chatter about, about it all. And I love the idea that, that you touched on in the book that it, it's also sort of, even if you had a private office, it's how you structure that whole thing. And I, I'm asking this because I told you I have three different workspaces and they all suck. I'm in, we're in the midst of actually building a house that hopefully will solve that problem of having like an office on a dedicated level and all this sort of stuff. And yet when, I, when I'm reading the book, I'm starting to realize like, hmm, maybe I need two whole desks, right? Like maybe I need a desk that I can leave stuff out on and then I need a desk that I can like turn around in my chair and have that's totally clear for like dedicated. Have you ever, <laughs> have you ever tried that? Is there, I don't know, does that line up with the research? Just forget it and just have two desks, a distracting one and a focus one? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think it's a great and creative way to approach the the problem. And uh, and it's absolutely something that, that I see people doing, you know. So, you know, the desk gets piled up and go work at the table in the living room, and, you know, and, and uh, where there's more social pressure for that not to get piled up. You know? But uh, eventually, you know, it's still like, you know, it is nice to be able to have that space. And, and if you schedule in a little bit of your downtime, not your good time, but specifically your bad time when you're not very effective to go through some of that, it can be a good use. It can, be, it can give you the extra flexibility. Um, you know, I encourage people to take the principles and apply them flexibly to find their own creative solutions. So the principle is, how can I be, uh, how can I present myself with a space that isn't, in the book I call it booby-trapped with distractors. You know, essentially, you know, the, the, we set up our offices to have email notifications and phones that can ring and people that can walk in and, you know, noises in the background and Xerox machines and all these kinds of things, right? And, uh, 
uh, we don't have to. We actually that that recognizing just how much that does affect us, how that how much that taps into precisely what our brains are designed to pick up on, uh, you know, is key for those times. And the thing is, I also I, I also what was important to me throughout writing the book was that I not suggest things that were unreasonable. That it has to be something we can actually do. And so it's for those times when we need to be highly effective. Uh, you know, if I'm preparing for an important presentation, you know, that's a time that I really need to be highly effective. So, you know, for those times, I find a way to, uh, you know, get rid of the booby traps. <laughs> hmm. And for the other times, it's not as it's not as key. Yeah. So yeah. You, you've touched on this a little bit. And let's let's go there. Um, of talking about your good hours and your bad hours or for those times and that sort of stuff. And it all actually starts, so we've gone from the end of the book uh, and the last strategy to let's go back to the first one. So much of it comes to this idea of an awareness of decision points and, and sort of recognizing when and how to spend your time. Um, let's talk a little bit about that and why that's so important. I mean, that's that we started in the workplace, but that's really sort of where the whole construct starts, right, is this idea of decision points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... You know, we're often told, we've been told for many years, is focus on what's important, not what's urgent. And it's great advice. Uh, but the challenge is, how do we actually follow through on that? You know, how do we, you know, it's, yes, of course, I'd like to focus on what's important. Um, but, but how do we actually follow through on it? And uh, what helps in terms of following through on it is to know that we actually don't have that many times during the day when we can make a decision about what we're going to work on. So we make lots of decisions about, for example, during the context of this conversation right now, we're making lots of decisions about what we'll say and how we'll ask questions. But we've already decided this is an interview. You know, this is a conversation. We're not, we don't have to decide what we're going to work on here. Um, there aren't that many times in the day when we can because we, we get onto autopilot. Once you get into the process of writing and checking emails, you can get lost in that and you're sort of like, okay, let's see what's next and how am I going to reply to that person. It's not you know, we seldom step back and think, should I even be checking email right now? Once we get into an interview, we kind of get into that interview mode and we don't, we don't step back and have the, the bigger picture thought about it. We get into meeting mode, those things. So we're on autopilot most of the time. There are a handful of times during the day, I think on a good day, maybe as many as 10, I really think that's a stretch, where you can decide what to work on. And it's because we, we become more conscious. We're, we're then conscious... We become very aware of the time passing, of what the options are, and they occur at moments like this. Uh, they, there's always one first thing in the morning. Uh, anytime, let's say, a meeting ends or a phone call ends or a patient just walks out of the room if you're a doctor, um, you know, or, uh, you know, or actually one that really ties in with what we were just talking about in the workspace, right after a distraction has just ended. So if somebody's just interrupted me, it used to just be absolutely frustrating, but now I know that once that person leaves, they've just created a decision point for me. They might have rescued me from working on something that wasn't actually the most important thing to work on. And I wouldn't have caught that unless I had that decision point. So the other thing is, so we have to, we le can learn to recognize these decision points. One way to recognize them is that they tend to be uncomfortable. We tend to get caught up in thinking about feeling like we're wasting time because we're more aware of time passing and we're aware that we're not so-called being productive. We're not actually accomplishing something in those m minutes. They tend not to last very long, though. If you indulged, maybe you'd take five minutes. You know, so across the day, if you indulge in 10, maybe you'll take 50 minutes. That tends to be less time than we lose. Time gets wasted when we start, a, start working on something that we shouldn't be working on that isn't that important. Time doesn't really get wasted in these decision points, but it feels like it's getting wasted. We're more aware of it. 
So recognizing that moment, savoring it, and all it takes is stepping back, sometimes standing up, until breathing a little bit, until you can remember, all right, what were the things that actually matter? What were the things that were important to me to get to today? You know, and sometimes it you know, helps to look at the list again. Often it actually helps not to look at the list because the things that really matter you really can hold in mind and looking at the list can distract you with feeling like there are a lot of things that are urgent. So, so recognizing those and taking them can then sort of set the stage for flexibly being able to use your time on the right things, on the things that really matter throughout the day and then also leveraging all the other strategies really in the book. I, I love that idea, by the way, and this maybe this is a great way to sort of bring it all full circle, that sometimes those interruptions are actually like interventions to rescue you. and Because <laughs> we always know the research about like you get distracted mid-task, it takes 23 minutes or whatever to get back on task. But it, we've never actually asked this sort of more philosophical question, is that a bad thing, right? Sometimes, right. sometimes get we get back on task. Right. Sometimes we should totally not go back to that task ever again, right? And so <laughs> I, I love that idea of, um, of decision points and sort of decide and recognizing kind of when they are. Um, I actually went, so we were joking right before this started about um, all the different notifications that pop up on um, on your computer and on your phone and, and what have you. And I, I, you actually have given me, um, in reading the book and in, and in talking with you, you've given me the idea of like, we should create a random interruption app that actually asks you that question. Like it's just set to at random times like buzz and go, are you actually working on something productive right now or should you do something better? Like, because now I'm thinking I, I about like, that. hmm, maybe I should be interrupted more often, right? <laughs> so <laughs> I love that. If there's, we've we've literally in this interview, we've only touched on two of the five strategies um, that you talk about in the book, and there's and and then there's like a whole sixth chapter of endnotes because the book is well researched. <laughs> so well done there. Um, you you know you're a solid professor, but also I mean you communicated in such a great way. So I want to encourage people to check out the book. Two, if you want two awesome hours, you should check out the book, Two Awesome Hours. Uh, in the meantime, I want to switch and talk uh, less about the book and more about you. Um, what are you reading right now? So I'm reading right now a book called Subjective Time. <laughs> and, you, uh, you, and So the people at home were doing this via Skype, and that was like the thickest book I may have ever seen. The thickest <laughs> non-religious text I think anyone's ever showed me via Skype chat. <laughs> Um, I just started reading it, so I can't say much about what I'm going to learn yet, but I can say about why I picked it up. Um, so uh, time, uh, you know, I've had some, some fantastic conversations about time uh, throughout the years, and it probably influenced wanting to write this book, uh, Two Awesome Hours. But if you really dig into what we know about time, there is no physical thing out there that we can point to that's called time. It uh, seems to be an entirely uh, subjectively created uh, construct. You know, Einstein gave us our best understanding of what time is as uh, just sort of a, if you will, I'm, and now maybe some people wouldn't like this description I'm giving, but as a mistaken understanding of a fourth physical dimension um, that, uh, you know, we move through time and space and it appears to us because we have this funny habit of aging that we, uh, you know, we can only move in one direction. And so, uh, we have, the, you know, or you could say entropy. We can only move in one dire direction uh, through time, and so it has this, ex you know, experience of being different uh, than the other three physical dimensions. But so understanding just how subjective time is, um, I think, can give us an understanding of of uh, the ways that we emotionally react to feeling like we're behind on something, or we're getting ahead, or are we moving through our lives and through time well? Are we 
living in the present? Are we really being present? Are we thinking about the moment? Are we thinking about, you know, ourselves through time? And so those kinds of things, I think, can go a long way towards helping us really, um, you know, have the kind of psychological balance in our lives that we want. So I'm, I'm reading that to understand something more about, uh, you know, what, what assumptions have I had that I don't even realize about the way I process time and the way I think about time and the way I may have sort of limited myself that way. Hmm. That we just went from scientific to philosophical at that point, which was um, quite cool. But but I mean, is this I, I almost should have asked the second question we ask everybody is what's next for you? Is, is this where you're headed kind of in your research? I know you said it inspired this first book, but I mean, in addition to thinking about distractions all wrong and the positive benefits of distractions, maybe I'm even thinking about aging all wrong. <laughs> I, I you know, that is definitely a topic I'm interested in is, uh, you know, rethinking aging and and uh you know probably i i would guess there are a number of um misconceptions out there there's sort of a general idea that as we age cognitively everything gets worse right <laughs> and but we know that there are some things that get better as we age such as the our ability to regulate our emotions um and uh you know and and uh i believe delay gratification you know so there there are things that we can improve at as we age cognitively um, so that is one option, but I, you know, to me, the first and foremost, I'd like to think of myself as a teacher. I love being able to help people connect with the ideas. So it, what, whatever I do, I want it to be very applicable, and so I want it to be things that people can take and use right away. And so some other areas of interest uh, for me are public speaking. Um, you know, there's a, there's a course that I do uh, that I teach, and and being able to translate that into into a book. Um, as well as um, some of the things that have to do with really connecting with other people effectively. Um, as you know, Heidi Grant Halverson has just written a book on that topic, which is fantastic. And so those are some of the spaces. I, I realize it's a broad range, um, but there's a, you know, it's what's, what's key for me is where can I find some places where science can help us understand something that we didn't understand as well that can be applied broadly in work and in life. You, uh, you're, you don't know it, but you're speaking the language of the podcast and the listeners of this podcast. So that's, that is quite awesome. Where can people find you and also find, I totally, totally forgot this entire time to mention the course on um, public speaking. Where can we find out more about you and also that course? Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. So you can find out more about me. Uh, if you go to two awesome hours.com, um, it'll talk about the book and has links to more information about me. Uh, and my background, uh, you can also get a flavor of the book there. Um, there is a link from there to the public speaking course. And also, uh, if you go directly to um, nlptraining.com, nlptraining.com, then you can link to uh, the public speaking course there. Well, awesome. Well, Josh, thank you so much for um, spending 20 minutes or so of your two awesome hours today with us inside the Leader Lab. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.